0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and corruption that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13.
1: In December of 1929, A slick layer of frost covered the streets of Harlem. But Stephanie St. Clair strode up Broadway in patent leather heels anyway. Bundled in furs, Madame St. Clair was dressed to the nines like any other day. But today wasn't just any day. Today she was launching a war.
0: Despite the precarious footwear, she moved swiftly through the crowded streets her right hand gripping the handle of a baseball bat. Soon she arrived at her destination, a jeweler's shop, or so it appeared.
1: When Stephanie stepped inside, it was clear that the store had been turned into a temporary office, a policy bank. As the shop bell jingled, a dozen employees in the midst of a busy workday stopped what they were doing to turn and stare at the elegantly dressed woman holding a baseball bat.
0: Stephanie smiled at the dumbstruck office, and for a moment everything was quiet. Then just as swiftly as she'd appeared, Stephanie swung the bat with all her might, smashing a nearby jewelry case into a thousand crystalline pieces.
1: Stephanie turned on her heel to target another case. And another. She knocked typewriters off tables. Stacks of paper flew into the air and fluttered to the floor. Workers screamed, but she continued her rampage, consumed in a gleeful rage. Then, finally,
0: she stopped. She surveyed the thoroughly destroyed office and, satisfied with her work, turned to the cowering workers and
1: dropped her bat. Stephanie then gave the terrified employees a message, Dutch Schultz better get the hell out of Harlem.
0: Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals.
1: Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original, You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: Last week, we began our journey into the life of racketeer Stephanie St. Clair. Arguably New York City's first black woman gangster, Stephanie's influence shaped the crime world during the 1920s and 30s, an undertaking that earned her the title of Madam St. Clair.
1: This week, we'll cover Madame St. Clair's life at the end of Prohibition, when she found herself going head-to-head with the ruthless white mobster Dutch Schultz. Schultz's violent takeover of Harlem's policy bank scene launched a bloody six-year war and sparked Stephanie to take up a new cause, social activism. In
0: 1916, Stephanie St. Clair came to New York City and settled in the burgeoning black community of Harlem. A teenage immigrant from the Caribbean, she'd come to the city alone, with little money and no job prospects. But a
1: mere decade later, she'd taken Harlem by storm. Through a combination of luck and resourcefulness, Stephanie forged a path for herself in Harlem's underworld. She cut her teeth in crime, working at an illegal policy bank, and soon began her own enterprise. It was an operation that would not only make her one of New York's first black woman policy bankers, but one of the most successful numbers game operators the city had ever seen.
0: With the aid of her right-hand man, the notorious gangster Bumpy Johnson, Stephanie built a gambling empire and began amassing a tax-free fortune. In the 1920s, Stephanie made upwards of a quarter
1: of a million dollars a year. That's around $3.5 million today. Life was grand for Madame St. Clair. She moved into an opulent brownstone and established a reputation for herself as a benevolent yet fierce queen of Harlem's policy banking scene.
0: But all good things must come to an end. And for Stephanie, the beginning of the end came with the close of prohibition. In
1: 1923, famously anti-temperance New York Governor Al Smith repealed the Gauge Statute, a state law that required the enforcement of alcohol prohibition. With Smith's signature, local police no longer needed to make arrests on the basis of the 18th Amendment. Smith effectively ended the Prohibition era in New York, nearly a decade before it was repealed nationwide. This was a huge blow for organized crime in New York City.
0: Mobs around town had built empires on bootlegging. And for four years, New York City had experienced a kind of criminal renaissance.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy.
0: According to sociologist John Landesco, in academic journal The Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, prohibition did more than increase criminal activity across the country. It justified particular crimes in the public's eyes. With the enactment of anti-liquor laws, a once-legal industry was forced into the underworld. And thus, crime syndicates running alcohol-related operations were lent a sense of legitimacy Bootlegging, underground distilleries, and speakeasies were seen as valid businesses. They offered a new host of occupations and an internal hierarchy for personnel to climb. With less social stigma,
1: crime in reaction to prohibition began to thrive. And thus, mobs enjoyed more power than ever before. Alcohol-related operations became the lifeblood of the American crime world. But in 1923, the repeal of the Mullen-Gage Law made a once-booming criminal industry essentially moot. To compensate for an inevitable dip in profits, New
0: York's crime families focused their attention on neighboring states where alcohol embargoes were still enforced. But by 1928, half of the
1: nation had stopped funding prohibition enforcement entirely. Alcohol manufacturing and bootlegging was on the decline, and New York's crime organizations were suffering financially, and thus were desperate. They would do anything to recoup their losses, and they didn't care who they had to kill to do it. According to
0: social and behavioral scientist Dr. M. Harvey Brenner, a strong positive correlation exists between economic recessions and increased criminal aggression. This connection tends to be especially strong in cases of violent behavior, including homicide. Though a direct causal relationship hasn't yet been proven, Brenner concluded that this is likely due to a combination of economic loss and psychological stress. These joint pressures drive individuals to engage in lawless, aggressive behavior in order to compete for
1: limited resources. But though the white mobs of New York City had fallen on hard times, the kings and queens of Harlem's policy banking scene were living large. Numbers rackets
0: in Harlem were incredibly lucrative. This was in large part due to race, While white bettors participated in policy banks purely to gamble, black players used them as a sort of investment opportunity.
1: Unable to deposit their money in traditional, white-dominated banks, black Harlemites turned to the numbers game. The Rackets gave them the chance to win large sums of money that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. Policy banking is
0: best described as half-investment and half-lottery. Each day, bankers would randomly select a secret three-digit number and players, not knowing the combination, would submit their bets, putting down cash on a particular figure. Anyone who hit the lucky combination would collect the
1: whole pot. Though technically illegal, policy banking was considered to be a credible institution in Harlem. It filled a need in black communities that wasn't being served by white banks. And all the while, it was making the men and women who ran the rackets incredibly rich.
0: Policy banking had made multi-millionaires of people like Stephanie St. Clair. But no one benefited from the racket more than her mentor, Casper Holstein.
1: Holstein was undoubtedly Harlem's wealthiest and most successful policy banker. He had blazed the trail to establish numbers rackets in Harlem long before Stephanie came onto the scene. Known for his deep pockets and magnanimous nature, everyone knew
0: Caspar Holstein was the true numbers king in Harlem, and soon everyone below 110th Street would know too.
1: In September of 1928, Casper Holstein lost over $30,000 on horses at the Belmont Park Racetrack in Queens. But this was hardly a blip for Harlem's top policy banker. Holstein was rolling in cash.
0: That's exactly what some nefarious onlookers figured as they witnessed the dapper man repeatedly put down grand after grand at the betting counter. They had just found themselves
1: the perfect victim for a kidnapping. Just one week later, on Friday, September 21, 1928, in the early morning hours, Casper Holstein was abducted at gunpoint. When Holstein failed to show up at his office, panic took hold of Harlem's policy banking scene. To Stephanie, Holstein was technically a competitor, but he was also a
0: beloved mentor, one of the first bankers who introduced her to the numbers game. Holstein was larger than life, and Stephanie had always considered him untouchable, but his disappearance was a dark omen.
1: Though he was a criminal, Harlem's numbers rackets were nonviolent. Whoever was responsible for Holstein's kidnapping couldn't be one of their own. His abductors played by different rules. And if Harlem's top policy banker wasn't safe, Stephanie figured no one was.
0: But Holstein's disappearance wasn't cloaked in mystery for long. The same afternoon of his abduction, Holstein's business associates received a call from his anonymous kidnappers demanding a ransom of $30,000, the equivalent of almost half a million dollars today. Stephanie and the entire Harlem community breathed a sigh of relief. In
1: 1928, such a high ransom was a tall order. But for Harlem's top policy banker, 30 k was chump change. Holstein's associates quickly gathered the money. And by that very evening, the ransom was paid in full, all in cash. In
0: her book, The World of Stephanie St. Clair, author Shirley Stewart wrote that the very next morning, Holstein was released. His kidnappers simply dropped him off a few blocks below Harlem's affluent Sugar Hill neighborhood, allowing him to keep his watch and all other jewelry. They even left
1: him a few dollars for cab fare. The abduction was quick, clean and by all accounts, painless, a non-violent crime. But the coverage of Holstein's kidnapping caught the attention of a much more vicious group of criminals. White
0: mobsters took notice of how quickly Holstein's ransom money was produced. No traditional bank would be open late enough on a Friday evening to accommodate such a
1: large cash withdrawal. If Holstein's associates were able to acquire that much money so late in the week, and on such short notice, they must have done so through a policy bank. A realization dawned on New York City's underworld. The Harlem numbers racket scene was flush with cash.
0: White mobsters hadn't previously taken policy banking in Harlem seriously. Individual bets in black numbers games were mere pennies on the dollar, an
1: amount that they assumed would never amount to a lucrative operation. But Holstein's hefty ransom quickly proved how wrong they were. Above 110th Street, money was flowing. They'd underestimated Harlem all along. As their own profits dwindled due to easing
0: prohibition laws and the Great Depression, White crime families, such as the Italian Mafia and the Jewish American Mob, had their sights set
1: to the North. Because the numbers rackets in Harlem were nonviolent, white mobsters considered the neighborhood open and vulnerable. With a little bloodshed, they could muscle their way in and seize operations for themselves. Harlem, it seemed, was ripe for the taking, and notorious
0: Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz was the first to move on to the
1: scene. Coming up, Stephanie St. Clair attempts to stand her ground as a violent invasion by Dutch Schultz threatens Harlem's peaceful numbers racket. Now, back to the story. By 1928, 30-year-old Stephanie St. Clair had built a true criminal empire from her Harlem policy bank. The endeavor made her incredibly wealthy, as well as influential in her peaceful, albeit criminal, community. But with the kidnapping of fellow policy banker Casper Holstein, her world was about to change. Holstein's abduction had shined a spotlight on the lucrative
0: numbers rackets operating north of Central Park, and the white mob took notice. As the profits of larger crime organizations dwindled with the onset of the Great Depression in 1929, they soon set their sights on Harlem. Of these white mobsters, Dutch Schultz was perhaps the
1: most notable, if not the most brutal. Dutch Schultz, born Arthur Flegenheimer, was a kingpin of New York's Jewish mob in the 1920s with ties to the Italian mafia. By age 27, Schultz's resume included bootlegging, speakeasies, extortion, and gambling. But regardless of what business he was running, Schultz was best known for his violent streak. Dutch Schultz was a
0: skilled gunman, but didn't hesitate to approach a threat with a knife or just pure fisticuffs. For Schultz, murdering a man was as unremarkable as brushing his teeth.
1: A notorious policy banker himself, Schultz was no stranger to the numbers rackets. He ran his operations in northern Manhattan and the Bronx. In 1929, Schultz began
0: to plan a two-pronged attack for a takeover of Harlem's policy banks. His approach would be violent, of course, but it would also be political.
1: Because Harlem was a majority black community, Policy bankers like Stephanie lacked government ties. Partnerships between black criminals and white politicians were difficult to come by. But Schultz, on the other hand, had political connections in spades. He used
0: this network of corrupt politicians, judges, and dirty cops to not only avoid imprisonment, but to support his criminal activity in his
1: territories in Manhattan and the Bronx. And Schultz intended to do the very same in Harlem, so he got to work, slowly but surely turning the neighborhood's own police against them.
0: In 1929, Stephanie St. Clair began to notice a change on Harlem streets. Left and right, it seemed that her numbers-runners kept encountering trouble. Police harassed her men while they made their betting rounds, and in some cases even arrested them on the spot. Again and
1: again, Stephanie found herself bailing her employees out of jail. This would normally be expected for any illegal operation, but that wasn't the case for Stephanie. She'd paid protection money to avoid this very scenario. Protection money was essentially a bribe regularly paid
0: out to police to ensure that cops looked the other way in the presence of illegal dealings. See no evil, hear no evil was the motto of Harlem Police, but not any longer.
1: Almost overnight, the cops changed allegiances. And when Stephanie's numbers runners returned to headquarters bruised and bloodied, she discovered why. Dutch Schultz had come onto the scene. Through his contacts in City Hall, Schultz
0: effectively monopolized police protection. He inserted himself as a middleman between the cops' and Harlem's numbers rackets. Now, to avoid arrest, policy bankers were forced to make their payments to
1: Schultz, and anyone who refused was promptly beaten to a pulp. And in some cases, When Schultz deemed it necessary to send a message, they were even killed. One by one, it seemed that numbers runners were ending up dead on the streets, proof of just how serious Schultz was.
0: Harlem's once peaceful policy bank scene entered a dark chapter, and as days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months, it became clear that Dutch Schultz had no intention
1: of backpedaling. Stephanie watched as her fellow policy bankers were run out of business, one after another. They dropped like flies in the face of Schultz's brutality, handing over valuable pieces of Harlem's numbers racket to the white mobster. But Stephanie St. Clair refused to back down.
0: While her colleagues gave up their businesses, Stephanie doubled down. She urged her male employees to stick with her through the battle against Schultz. In her book, The Women Who Made New York, author Julie Shelfo described Stephanie's
1: rallying cry. What kind of men would desert a lady in a fight? Not her men, that's for sure. Stephanie's employees, including her faithful right hand Bumpy Johnson, remained with her despite threats of arrest and brutal beatings. There was no
0: doubt that her workers felt a sense of loyalty to their madam, but sources claim that Stephanie also gave her employees larger cuts of profits during this period, a small price to pay for putting their
1: lives on the line. Stephanie's defiance was in part due to her famous fighting spirit, the bold sensibility and sense of agency that had helped her find success in the underworld.
0: But it was also fueled by a profound rage
1: that Schultz was stealing business from a community that already had so little. And so 31-year-old Stephanie took up the mantle as Harlem's unofficial champion. Harlemites were her people, and she felt compelled to defend and to lead them in a fight for justice.
0: Professor Megan E. Gilster at the University of Iowa found that affluence has a significant impact on an individual's participation in civic engagement, especially on the local level. Gilster said that those with wealth could better afford to participate in community activism. And wealthy individuals who lived in communities experiencing socioeconomic inequality were far more likely to be civically involved than those
1: individuals who lived in strictly prosperous communities. And it'd be safe to assume that this drive would be increased tenfold if the welfare of their community was inextricably linked to their livelihood, as it was in the case of Stephanie St. Clair. Though the genuine altruism of her motivations could be debated, there's no doubt that Stephanie had skin in the game, and she would do anything and everything she could to win. But for Stephanie St.
0: Clair, The battle for Harlem wasn't fought on the streets as much as it was waged across the pages of newspapers.
1: On August 31, 1929, Stephanie took out advertisements in a local Harlem paper, the New York Amsterdam News, and published open letters to members of the community regarding the state of the neighborhood. These letter ads were one part firebrand activism and one part episodic recountings of her exploits. Stephanie urged readers to register
0: to vote and reminded them to utilize their Fourth Amendment rights to protect themselves from unwarranted searches and seizures from corrupt cops. But most importantly, she called out the devastation that Schultz's takeover of the numbers racket had on the Harlem community.
1: Stephanie took out more than a dozen full-page ads in the New York Amsterdam News. She dedicated paragraphs to exposing and shaming Schultz's violence against Black business owners and residents. And eventually, it got Schultz's attention. He was furious at Stephanie's public defiance.
0: Her one-woman campaign against his numbers operations could hurt his business, so her resistance was naturally met with violence.
1: In short order, Stephanie received anonymous, threatening calls to her opulent brownstone home. Then she noticed strange men following her movements. Trailing her, she walked to and from her home and the policy bank. But never the alarmist, Stephanie paid them no mind. On the
0: streets, at least, she was almost always flanked by bodyguards, but soon it
1: became clear that Schultz had ordered hits on her life. An acquaintance of Stephanie's eventually confessed that one of Schultz's associates approached her with an offer, $500 to lure the madam into an apartment where a hitman would be waiting to offer once and for all. But this only stoked the flames of Stephanie's rage,
0: and so she dealt with the threats in her own quintessential style, deftly
1: and without getting her own hands dirty. According to author Shirley Stewart, one summer afternoon, Schultz sent a man to Stephanie's home, presumably to intimidate the madam. But before the goon could make his move, Stephanie shoved the unwelcome visitor into her hall closet.
0: And locked him inside.
1: Then, she simply made a call. Soon, four of Stephanie's own men arrived to take care of the situation.
0: 20 minutes later, the man was beaten within an inch of his life. He was barely alive just enough to send a gruesome message
1: back to Schultz. Taunting Schultz, she announced in the Amsterdam News, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or of any other man living. He'll never touch me. And though the madam
0: wasn't known for engaging in violence herself, she had no qualms in personally
1: wreaking a bit of property damage. In late 1929, Stephanie began appearing in Schultz's storefront bedding operations, bent on destruction. She attacked his shops, smashing glass cases and display windows, and destroying stacks of bedding slips, effectively ruining days of work. She waged her
0: ambushes alone, without bodyguards or goons. This was intentional, Stephanie had to make her point clear. She wasn't afraid of Dutch Schultz,
1: and there was no threat he could possibly make that would break her. Though Schultz's attempts at intimidation had proved fruitless against Madame St. Clair's resolve, he still had friends in high places. So he set about pulling the right strings to solve the issue for him.
0: On December 30th, 1929, 31-year-old Stephanie was arrested
1: by Harlem police on racketeering charges. For the next three months, as Stephanie sat in jail, her attorney fiercely pursued a jury trial. Because she was a well-known and charitable member of the community, he was certain Stephanie would get off on a lighter sentence if granted Harlemite jurors. However the presiding judge swiftly denied the request. Then, in March of 1930, Stephanie was sentenced
0: to an indefinite term at the state penitentiary on Roosevelt Island, located in the center of New York City's East River.
1: After over 14 years of illegal racketeering, Harlem's Numbers Queen was behind bars for the very first time.
0: Without their fierce champion to lead the charge against Dutch Schultz's invasion, Harlem's numbers seemed continued to decline as Schultz gained power in the struggling
1: neighborhood. As Stephanie languished behind bars, she began to hatch a plan to beat Schultz at his own game, and she had no intention of playing by the rules. Up next,
0: Stephanie St. Clair takes Dutch Schultz to task and uses her own connections
1: to drive him from Harlem. Now back to the story. In 1929, notorious Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz staged a violent takeover of Harlem's policy banking scene through a combination of intimidation tactics, political corruption, and even murder. But despite his brutal methods... Stephanie St. Clair
0: refused to back down. Instead, she staged a one-woman smear campaign against Schultz and single-handedly waged attacks on his numbers shops.
1: But in March of 1930, Stephanie's fierce resistance came to a halt when she was arrested on racketeering charges and given an indefinite sentence in a state penitentiary. For months,
0: Stephanie languished behind bars while Schultz's grip on Harlem's numbers rackets tightened. With each passing day, his operations drained tens of thousands of dollars from Harlem, funds that were desperately needed in a
1: community already suffering from government neglect. Policy bankers gave back, but with Dutch Schultz's steady takeover, The funds raised in the numbers rackets that Harlem so desperately needed were being funneled elsewhere.
0: According to anthropologist and professor Leith Mullings, in the absence of government support, minority communities suffer from class exploitation. These various discriminations, such as housing and employment insecurity, take a great toll on the well-being of marginalized
1: communities. Harlem developed policy banking as an answer to racist political structures. Stephanie, as well as other bankers, recirculated their wealth, albeit only a fraction of it, throughout their community. Whether in the form of providing loans for small businesses or funding community projects, Harlem benefited from the Benevolent Madam's contributions. With Stephanie incarcerated, Dutch Schultz had free reign to wreak financial
0: havoc on an already impoverished community. Thinking about the toll Schultz was
1: taxing upon her beloved Harlem made Stephanie's blood boil. But she wouldn't be forced to stew for much longer. After almost nine months in the state penitentiary on Roosevelt Island, 31-year-old Stephanie was released on December 3rd, 1930. And she immediately got to work. Stephanie was determined to take down every last man who'd landed her in prison. And fortunately, her release came with good timing. In 1930,
0: Franklin D. Roosevelt was the newly elected governor of New York. He was set on investigating allegations of deep-seated corruption in the state's justice and political system. Roosevelt assembled a task force to look into these claims called the Hofstadter Committee or the Seabury Investigations.
1: The commission embarked on a massive investigation into city officials' potential ties to organized crime. It was an undertaking that involved the examination of thousands of papers and statements from hundreds of witnesses. So Stephanie eagerly
0: stepped in line, armed with an arsenal of names and information that would implicate the very policemen and politicians that Schultz had used to land her in
1: prison. She'd kept the names of the dirty Harlem cops, whom she'd paid protection money to, under wraps for nearly a decade. But with Schultz's invasion, allegiances had changed, and Stephanie would be damned if she safeguarded the reputations of traitors. The very next Monday after
0: her release from prison, Stephanie testified before the committee, and the
1: members of the Hofstadter committee listened. More than a dozen police officers were suspended from the force, including the officers responsible for her arrest. It was the most dramatic exposure of political corruption the city had ever seen. But Stephanie was just getting started.
0: Once again, she took up the mantle of skewering Dutch Schultz on a public platform exposing in great detail the injustices and violence he'd waged on Harlem in the
1: pages of the New York Amsterdam News. And she didn't stop there. If she was going to drive the ruthless white mobster out of Harlem, she had to best Dutch Schultz at his own game. So she ratted him out, just as he had done to her.
0: In March of 1933, she provided information that led to a raid of Schultz's operations. According to author Shirley Stewart, the fallout included the arrest of 14 of Schultz's employees and the seizure of over $12 million in the form of cash and betting slips, the equivalent of over $200 million in
1: 2019. This made a sizable dent in Schultz's operations. But the multi-millionaire mobster wouldn't go down with a single blow. It was clear that driving Dutch Schultz out of Harlem would be a multi-year process, and the inevitable fallout would be difficult to justify. Already in 1933,
0: the policy bank wars of Harlem had led to the murders of dozens of people. Continuing to battle Schultz would only result in more needless death and chaos. It was becoming clear to all of Harlem that in order to beat Schultz, the next move would have to
1: be fatal. But Stephanie found that the Italian Mafia already had their sights set on Schultz's life. However, they wanted to take over his Harlem operations. For Stephanie,
0: this posed a difficult decision, choosing the lesser of two evils. Would she challenge the Italians, yet another white mob overtaking Harlem's policy banks?
1: Or would she forge a partnership with their powerful mafia and willingly hand off a portion of her dominion? Ultimately, the choice was obvious
0: for Stephanie. No matter how much it hurt her pride to give up any amount of control, she couldn't willingly put more Harlemites in harm's way.
1: Headed by Charles Lucky Luciano, the original founder of the Genovese crime family, the Italian mob in the 1930s was at the height of its power. Ever the wise businesswoman, Stephanie realized it served Harlem best to keep the Italians as friends rather than foes. And so she agreed on an arrangement with Lucky.
0: Stephanie handed over a portion of her profits in exchange for her employees' guaranteed safety and the ability to continue running her numbers operations, albeit in a more limited
1: capacity. But any regret Stephanie felt when ceding control was justified tenfold on October 25th, 1935. It was a day Stephanie had waited six years for. That day, 33-year-old Schultz
0: was at the Palace Chophouse restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, conducting business over a late dinner. He was there with some associates, including two of his bodyguards. But midway through his prime rib, Schultz excused himself
1: from the table. He had to take a leak. As Schultz washed his hands, an armed hitman burst through the door of the men's bathroom, holding a semi-automatic. Before Schultz had a moment to draw his own pistol, two rounds were swiftly fired into his abdomen.
0: Schultz collapsed to the linoleum as his associates and bodyguards were gunned
1: down by a second hitman in the dining room. But Schultz wasn't dead yet. He managed to survive for almost 24 hours before succumbing to a blood infection. In
0: his last hours, he drifted in and out of lucidity, speaking nonsense stream of consciousness. His last words were reportedly, oh, oh, dog biscuit. And when he is happy, he doesn't get snappy.
1: Schultz's death was slow and no doubt painful, just as Stephanie would have hoped. She delivered her last words to Schultz via telegram, just hours before he passed. Highlighting the poetic justice of his demise, it read, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And she signed it, Madam Queen of Policy. To Stephanie, Schultz's murder was an enormous victory, but there was more than a sense of justice at play in her sensational reaction to his death. Neuroscientist Dr. Eddie Harmon Jones
0: explains that the expression of revenge is closely connected to activity in the pleasure centers of the brain. When examining brainwaves, Harmon Jones found that anger, specifically in cases of retaliation, triggered the prefrontal cortex, an area of the brain also associated with the satisfaction
1: of hunger. Essentially, there's a reason why revenge tastes so sweet.
0: Harlem's madam, it seemed, had ultimately won the war against her brutal enemy. But with Dutch Schultz's death also came the gradual end of Stephanie's policy banking career. Many of her colleagues had quietly left the scene in the wake of Schultz's terror. And when 37-year-old Stephanie re-emerged from her six-year war, she found that she was one of a dying
1: breed many of the few remaining black policy bankers now worked directly under white mobsters. And soon, Stephanie arranged with Lucky Luciano to do the same, but on one condition, that she passed the torch to her ever faithful right-hand man, Bumpy Johnson. Handing off the day-to-day operations to Bumpy allowed Stephanie to
0: informally retire from the numbers game. However, she couldn't stay away entirely, Some sources claim that she continued to work in some capacity behind the scenes
1: for decades after she had claimed to cede her policy banking business. Regardless, Bumpy ultimately became the face of the operation and oversaw the rackets under Luciano, though this imposed hierarchy became more or less a formality when Luciano was deported back to Italy in 1936 allowing Bumpy virtually free reign of the Harlem policy banks.
0: Bumpy carried on the legacy of Harlem's policy kings and queens of years past by operating the numbers games in the same benevolent tradition as his predecessors. Community support was Bumpy's
1: priority, just as it had been Stephanie's. But the end of her policy banking days didn't mean the end of social involvement for Stephanie St. Clair. In fact, it was just the beginning.
0: Stephanie continued to take out advertisements in the Amsterdam news, using her influence to keep Harlemites informed on the state of the community. But now, with Dutch Schultz out of the way, Stephanie was free to address broader, more systematic problems plaguing the people of Harlem. Issues like housing and employment discrimination and police brutality were common topics
1: that Stephanie addressed head-on. She began each of her open letters by addressing her readers as members of my race, and every one of Stephanie's ads was accompanied by a photo of herself dressed in her signature elegant wardrobe. For the next 30 years, Stephanie was an
0: advocate, utilizing her platform in order to provide a voice for her community, a responsibility she took seriously, if not with some measure of ego, as
1: was Stephanie's style. Her new role as a community activist fit her perfectly, always intent on bending the rules, fading into obscurity as a plainclothes civilian simply wouldn't do for Madame St. Clair. She continued her civil work and took
0: a particular interest in Harlem's Caribbean immigrant population. For the rest of her life, she dedicated herself to assisting new immigrants in their integration to New York City, helping them learn English, find employment, and even
1: apply for citizenship. Stephanie's place was among her people. And through advocacy, she continued to fight for their best interests until her death.
0: Stephanie St. Clair passed away quietly in December of 1969, dying of unknown causes just a few days shy of her birthday. Though her departure from the world was understated, her legacy is anything but a brutal criminal and a firebrand advocate, the duality of Stephanie St. Clair's legacy is as complex as her life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Stephanie St. Clair, amongst the many sources we used, we found The World of Stephanie St. Clair, an entrepreneur, race woman, and outlaw in early 20th century Harlem by Shirley Stewart, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music,
0: but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals,
1: like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Anthony Valsik. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebskind, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Garland, and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.